The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. It is Tuesday, February 28th, 2017. My health time flies. Well, today's topic is pain relief or just putting you out of your misery. Which is it? It can be tough to tell, you know. Millions of Americans every year receive prescriptions for pain medications that cause stroke, heart attack, even death. What's going on here? Is this pain relief or is it euthanasia? You decide. As always, think happens. So I'd just like to remind you, you're listening to uh, Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul Channel, and this is Healing with Dr. Daniels. Uh, Disclaimer, anything you hear tonight is, uh, well, it may be based on information from the government, the interpretations are mine alone, and your decision to follow or not follow any information is, of course, solely your responsibility. Uh, I offer no guarantees, warranties, or otherwise. All right, so let's jump right in. So uh, as many of you know, uh, a lot of medications have side effects, and we're just kind of programmed to believe that these side effects are, well, totally acceptable. And that the drugs prescribed are the only options. And they certainly are the standard of care. There can be no doubt about that. However, uh, an alarming number of people are meeting their demise as a result of going to their doctor and asking for pain medicine. This might not be a very bright thing to do. So what we're going to talk about today is the different drugs that are used to relieve pain and what the consequences of these drugs are. And then we're going to talk about, well, well doing something else, something just a little bit different. All righty. So uh, let's just start with what's uh, presently, I'll call it the fashion of the day, in terms of uh, pain relief. We've all heard about NSAIDs. 
These are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So non-steroidal means that, well, it's not a steroid. It's not prednisone, for example. And so it uh, relieves pain through a different mechanism. Well, actually, to tell you the truth, the NSAIDs do relieve pain um, by interfering with what's called a cyclooxygenase pathway. don't need to remember that. We do need to remember if, if it interferes with this. And cyclooxygenase is actually a very important uh, metabolite in your body. And so the NSAIDs keep your body basically from uh, making these uh, cyclooxygenase compounds. And so let's see what we know or what the medical industrial complex says we know about these drugs. So this is February 2nd, 2017, hot off the press. And this is um, from Medscape, and it says NSAIDs plus respiratory infection. A respiratory infection, we'll call that the common cold, or it could be something more serious. But respiratory infections, that would be the common cold, pneumonia, bronchitis, um, anything with a cough. Okay. Increases heart attack now, this increases heart attack risk. How much does it increase the heart attack risk? Answer? It increases the heart attack risk by 3.4-fold, or 340%. That's a pretty good increase in risk. And those of you who remember uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs reduce your heart attack risk, they only reduce your heart attack risk by 10%. And so here you have something that increases the heart attack risk by 340%, and shh, 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 nobody's, I won't say nobody's talking about it because they are sending this as an email correspondence to all of your doctors. Your doctors all know about this. But they certainly aren't putting it on the 6 o'clock news, and they certainly aren't telling people like you. So let's see what they're telling your doctor. So non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs use during acute respiratory infection, you've got a cough, and you take, say, Motrin, Advil, Nuprin. These are over-the-counter, and there's some you know, prescription forms as well. Increased risk of acute myocardial infarction by 3.4-fold if taken by mouth, and 7.2-fold with parenteral dosing. That means dosing other than by mouth. That would be uh, by intravenous, for example. Compared with baseline risk without NSAID use, or acute respiratory infection, according to a report published online February 2nd in the Journal of Infectious Disease, a reputable journal, medical journal, by the way. Now, this alternative stuff, this is licensed doctors saying this. Experts agree clinicians should consider patient history and the potential risk before prescribing the drugs to patients with an acute respiratory infection. Now, let's examine this sentence. Clinicians should consider the patient history, that means stop, pause, listen, and the potential risk, and then go ahead and prescribe the drugs anyway to patients with an acute respiratory infection. So they're not saying don't do it. They're just saying before you do it, consider the history and consider the potential risk. So you know you've got an NSAID, you've got an acute respiratory infection, you're going to multiply the chances of a heart attack at least 340%. What else is there to consider? You know what I mean? <laughs> First of all, everybody knows that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are not life-saving drugs. These drugs do not save people's lives. It's not what they're there for. 
these drugs just relieve pain. It just it makes the person more comfortable. So why give a non-life-threatening drug in a case where it has no, where it has a chance of killing people? So why take a drug with no chance to save a person's life? but a 340% chance of killing them. Why do that? I don't know. I didn't write this, but this is what they're saying. So several studies, not just one, several studies have shown an increased risk for acute myocardial infarction during an acute respiratory infection, as well as an increased risk for acute myocardial infarction with the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. These are just painkillers. They just help relieve the person's pain. So since 2005, that would be 12 years ago, time flies, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has required manufacturers of over-the-counter NSAIDs to include warning labels about elevated risk for cardiac effects. Cardiac effects. the heck is that? It's a heart attack, right? Death by heart attack. The agency strengthened the warning for heart attack and stroke in 2015. However, studies have not previously examined the effect of combined NSAID and acute respiratory infection exposure. Now, acute respiratory infection, I'm telling you, this is shocking because we're talking about the common cold. And a lot of cold preparations have ibuprofen as part of their ingredient mix. And so you mean just taking a simple cold preparation that has ibuprofen in it during your cold increased your chances of heart attack by 340%. This is pretty impressive. So therefore, uh, Yao Chun-Wen Ma from the National Taiwan University Hospital, Taipei, and colleagues investigated the possible combined effects of, uh, of acute respiratory infection and NSAID use with a case crossover study that included 9,793 patients with hospitalization for acute myocardial myocardial infarction between 2007 and 2011. Let's read the sample size over a period of, you know, four years. Using claims data, that means what the insurance company said, from Taiwan's National Health Insurance Program, the authors compared acute myocardial infection risk among patients with acute respiratory infections and NSAID exposure and respiratory infection without NSAID exposure, and NSAID exposure only, or no exposure, neither respiratory infection nor NSAID use. And so the index date was the first day of hospitalization, and the case period extended back seven days. And the match control period was between 366 and 372 days before the index date. And so compared with no exposure, NSAID use during the respiratory infection was associated with a 340% increased risk for acute myocardial infection. And um, acute respiratory infection without NSAID use was associated with a 2.7-fold increase for acute myocardial, myocardial infarction. And just NSAID use alone was associated with a 1.5 increased risk of acute myocardial infarction. So... Uh, I guess the only consolation here, uh, it's a pretty minimal one, is that the effect appears to be 
just a little more than additive. So the risk of the respiratory infection causing a heart attack plus the risk of NSAIDs having a heart attack, causing a heart attack, plus a little bit more uh, is what the final risk was. So this is really, um, really shocking. So of course the question is, once they present your doctor with all this uh, gruesome information, do they, what do they suggest? The report uh, contributes to the evidence for dual effects of acute myofibril, acute myocardial infection, uh, infarction triggers and highlights the need for cautious use of NSAIDs in the context of acute respiratory infection. So clinicians should consider both medical conditions and existing medications when prescribing NSAIDs for symptomatic relief of a respir- respiratory tract infection or acute respiratory infection. That's it. That's it. Your doctor should simply consider. This is just a consideration. Don't worry. No big deal. Yes, people are dying. Three times as many of heart attacks. And now this also, just by the way, calls into question the whole idea that if you want to prevent an acute myocardial infarction, you should take cholesterol drugs, you should lower your blood pressure. Uh, excuse me. How about not taking an NSAID when you have a respiratory infection? There you go. Now that's going to prevent some heart attacks. But the point here is we have a um, class of drugs that are used to relieve pain, freely used to relieve pain. They're over-the-counter and they're prescription. And um, these drugs are um, absolutely um, deadly. And let's just take a look at these. Uh, aspirin, let's go through the list. Aspirin, Celebrex, Voltaren, Dolabid, Motrin, Advil, Indesin, or also Indomethacin. So these are a few of the non drugs. Uh, here's some more. Telectin, Clinaril, Feldine, Depro, Aleve, Toradol, ketoprofen. So those are the basic uh, non-steroidal drugs. So these drugs increase your chance of heart attack by 3.4 or 340%. Now, if you just take these drugs and you don't have a cold, well, then you only increase your uh, heart attack risk by 50%. So you have a 150% chance of having a heart attack over what you would have had if uh, you know you just... Uh, hadn't taken the drug. So let's take a look at uh, something else about these uh, drugs. So FDA strengthens warning for heart attack and stroke risk due to NSAIDs. Now, just by the way, uh, this is actually kind of a paradox because NSAIDs actually thin the blood. Aspirin is in this class, by the way. Um, And so they're saying that this class of drugs causes heart attacks, increased heart attacks, and increased strokes. Of course, not aspirin, but uh, we'll see more on that later. So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, that would be the FDA, has strengthened an existing label warning that non-aspirin, non-steroidals, may increase the risk for heart attack or stroke according to an agency alert sent today. Now, 
may increase, uh, that's pretty weak. The fact is, they do increase, and people have had increased problems with this. So rather than take the um, drugs off the market, we're just going to issue a warning. Not too loud, not too loud. Just send a little note to the doctors. You, the patients, don't need to know this. You wouldn't know how to handle it. Um, so it's been updated to reflect the increased risk that prescription and over-the-counter non-aspirin NSAIDs already include. Information about the risk for heart attack and stroke with NSAIDs, either of which can lead to death, the FDA states in a news release. So these, these drugs are killing people. Prescription non-aspirin labels first included boxed warning. Now, boxed warning, that means it's a, black, a box, a black line making a box, and there's a warning inside it. And you generally have a black box warning or boxed warning when the warning is serious and involving death. Okay, it's a big deal. So the FDA uh, reviewed new safety information on prescription drugs that included observational studies, a large combined analysis of clinical trials and other scientific publications. So the FDA's Arthritis Advisory Committee and Drug Safety and Risk Management Advisory Committee, means risk management means we take a look at managing the risk of being sued, by the way, discussed these studies at a joint meeting on February. So the question is, we need to say something, otherwise we could get sued. Hmm. So the updated labels for prescription NSAIDs would include the following information. Heart attack or stroke risk can increase as early as the first weeks of NSAID use, and the risk may increase with longer NSAID use. The risk appears to be greater at higher doses. That's it. That's just going to be in the box supposedly, of arthritis-type pills or NSAID pills for pain relief. And so basically what the industry, what the FDA is asking people to, set, to do is to accept an increased risk of heart attack, an increased risk of stroke for the possibility of pain relief. Those of you who have taken these drugs for relief of your pain, you know they don't always work. Yes, that's, they do not always work. That's right. And so this is the worst kind of gamble. Uh, the upside, which is pain relief, is certainly not guaranteed, and the downside, which is uh, death, is, is very real, and it does happen, and people do die. Although the risk was previously thought to be similar for all NSAIDs, more recent information calls this into question. The FDA now says there is not enough information to determine whether the risk is higher or lower for one NSAID compared to the other. A large number of studies show that patients with or without heart disease or risk factors for heart disease are at increased risk for heart attack or stroke. Um, let me put this in English for you. If you are a low-risk, no-risk-of-heart-disease person, you have got a perfectly fine heart, you can still have a heart attack and die from taking these drugs. So the person's background cardiac risk is not any guarantee that taking these medications is safe. How about them apples? In general, the risk for heart attack or stroke after NSAID use is greater in patients with heart disease or risk factors for it because the risk is higher at baseline. However, the problem here is even if you have no heart attack risk, you can still be one of those unlucky people who gets a heart attack or stroke. All right. Patients who take NSAIDs after a first heart attack 
were more likely to die in the year after the heart attack compared with those who did not take NSAIDs after their first heart attack. Now, this is puzzling because aspirin is an NSAID. This is a class of drug that it is. So how is it that aspirin escapes any of these ill effects? How is it that it's taking an aspirin a day is beneficial, but taking any other NSAID is deadly? Just a question, just a question, just asking. One that probably you should ask before you take aspirin. Patients are at increased risk for heart failure as well with NSAID use. And that's true because NSAIDs affect the kidneys as well. And so it affects the kidneys. The kidneys don't dump the fluid or manage the fluid like they should. And it backs up on the heart and you get heart failure. All right. So the FDA recommends that patients and healthcare professionals remain alert for cardiac effects for the duration of NSAID use. Now, remain alert. This is acute myocardial infarction. That means acute means sudden. So remaining alert is not useful because you're not going to have any early signs. This is something that happens all of a sudden. So to remain alert is not an adequate precaution at all because remaining alert is not going to prevent the heart attack. Okay. So healthcare professionals and patients should report adverse events potentially related to NSAID use to the FDA's MedWatch Safety Information Adverse Event Reporting Program online via blah, 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 blah. Now, this is... I can't tell you about it today. I can only tell you back in the old days in the 90s, <laughs> Dudley Do right here actually made such a report about a drug. I tell you, I was deluged with paperwork, besieged by drug reps. It was atrocious. I made up my mind I would never, ever again report an adverse effect. I mean, it's not like anyone's life was saved or they took any kind of reasonable beneficial action as a result of my reporting it. My life was certainly turned upside down. So here we have the FDA strengthening a warning for heart disease and stroke. In other words, you take an NSAID, you're increasing your risk of heart disease and stroke, and this heart disease, not heart disease, heart attack and stroke could happen in the first week that you're taking this drug. As directed, of course, we're not talking about irresponsible drug use, talking about taking these drugs as prescribed or as mentioned. Okay, so we have two issues here with NSAIDs, heart disease, uh, stroke, and now the big crisis of the day. This is not directly deadly, but it just kills off the next generation. NSAIDs dramatically reduce ovulation with consistent use. So all you ladies out there suffering from infertility, here you go, here you go. This is from Rome, Italy. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have been shown to inhibit ovulation and reduce progesterone levels in young women, which could seriously undermine fertility. How about that? (laughs) I am actually a very late whistleblower because many others have tried to say the same thing, that NSAIDs, which are widely used and can be bought without a prescription, prevent the ovarian follicle from rupturing. So women where taking NSAIDs cannot release an egg to be fertilized. And so when do women take this? Well, they take it for their menstrual cramps, of course. Talk to any lady under 40 who has menstrual cramps and ask, what do you take? She'll say, well, I take Nuprin. Well, I take Advil. Oh, I take Motrin. 
So these young women are taking these pain pills for their menstrual cramps, and it is preventing them from becoming pregnant, and they are infertile. Now, so the baby was never born because the egg was never released, but you get the picture. We're wiping out a whole generation here. So although this process is reversible, a woman is not going to get pregnant if she continues to take NSAIDs. And doctors need to advise women to stop taking these drugs if they want to be fertile. How about that? Someone suggested stop taking a drug in order to get fertile, but no one suggested stopping these drugs to prevent a heart attack or a stroke. Okay, all right, I got you. I guess it's a degree here, you know, degree of seriousness. Not getting pregnant is a little more serious than having a heart attack or stroke. All right, I got you. Dr. Salmon presented the study results here at the European League Against Rheumatism Congress. So these drugs, by the way, are used for rheumatoid uh, afflictions and for arthritis, just by the way. He and his colleagues evaluated 39 women of childbearing age who presented to a rheumatology clinic in Baghdad with minor back pain. The women were assigned to one of four treatment regimens, diclofenac, which is a non-steroidal, naproxen, non-steroidal, etocoxahib, non-steroidal, or placebo, which is like nothing. Before the initiation of treatment, each woman underwent an ultrasound to assess the diameter of the dominant follicle, ovary size, and endothelial thickness. Because progesterone, which is essential for ovulation, and the implantation of a fertilized embryo is known to be affected by NSAIDs, progesterone levels were also measured. The treatments were initiated on day 10 of a wound cycle to ensure a follicle was being ready to be released. After 10 continuous days on the treatment regimen, the woman underwent another ultrasound to assess the effect of the therapy. The dominant follicle remained unruptured in 75% of women in the diclofenac group, 25% in the naproxen group, and 33% in the etorococcin group, and 0% in placebo group. So the placebo group was 100% fertile because all of the follicles ruptured and released their ovaries, their eggs rather. Um, but in the non-steroidal groups, anywhere from 30, 25% to 75% of the women were actually sterile that cycle and never released an egg. For those taking um, diclofenac, ovulation was reduced by an amazing 93%, whereas for both naproxen and atroxahib, ovulation was reduced by 75%, he added. This was a shocking finding. So in other words, of the ones that have follicles, 75% didn't rupture, but of those examined, 93% didn't even ovulate, didn't even make a follicle. So this is a tantamount to complete sterilization. So after 10 continuous days of NSAID use, there was a significant decrease in progesterone, which means if the lady got pregnant, she would most likely lose the pregnancy even before her next period came. NSAIDs also had an effect on the dominant follicle. So this is really um, uh, amazing. So this means that across all treatment groups, about one-third of patients developed a functional cyst due to the unruptured follicle. So when a follicle does not rupture and release the um, egg, that becomes a cyst. Um, and it's fluid and the egg is retained into the next cycle and sometimes even indefinitely. And these ladies, I can tell you, back in the 90s, we always prescribed 
non-steroidals like uh, Motrin, um, Indusin, Naprosyn for these ladies. And so this actually makes ovarian cysts worse. And they grow month after month after month. You know, lady ovulates again, the follicle's not released, then she's got a cyst because it didn't break open, releasing the fluid and the egg. After discontinuation of the NSAIDs, all the women did ovulate normally during the next cycle, he reported. This convinced us that the anovulatory effects of NSAIDs are reversible. In other words, these NSAIDs stop ovulation. For those of you out there who believe in this population control, conspiracy theory thing, uh, having women take these drugs for their menstrual periods is definitely uh, creating infertility above and beyond what any birth control pill might do. Okay, so first reminds us that we should be knowledgeable about uncommon side effects of drugs that we frequently use. The potential negative effects of NSAIDs on fertility have been reported for many years. I'll honestly tell you, this is the first I heard of it, and uh, you know, I've been in practice for years and years and years. Second, the doctor noted, most NSAID use is, is in the postmenopausal age group. It's intermittent or both. Rheumatologists see a substantial number of younger women for whom fertility is often an issue, with inflammatory diseases who use NSAIDs frequently. And that is it. So we now have NSAIDs being used for pain relief, non-deadly condition, and these NSAIDs are literally preventing the next generation from being born. So these are ladies, many of them trying to actually have, have babies. So what else do we know about NSAIDs? NSAIDs, of course, cause intestinal bleeding. They're famous for that. And they do thin the blood. So now NSAIDs risk increase the bleeding and the cardiovascular risk in post-heart attack patients who are treated with antithrombotic medication. So the Upshot of this is if a person has had a heart attack and they're having pain and you're treating, of course, with blood thinning medicines because that's the standard of care for heart attacks, then if you add NSAIDs to the, to the pileup, they're going to get increased bleeding and as well as the increase of uh, an additional heart attack. So this is... Uh, Another instance not to use NSAIDs. So they're harmful for people who've had heart attacks. They're harmful for people who've not had heart attacks. It gives them heart attacks. And just in case you're trying to get pregnant, it's harmful for you. You will never have, uh, I won't say never, but unlikely to ever have a baby or get pregnant. And if you have surgery and they use NSAIDs. Now a lot of times NSAIDs are used, why? To relieve pain and they're used instead of narcotics, that way you don't get um, addiction problems that you will with narcotics. And so now they're using NSAIDs because, well, they're safer. And so NSAIDs may increase risk for anastomotic leak. Now, this is very complicated and almost uh, unintelligible, but increases the risk for the wound to leak blood and other materials. In other words, for the wound to actually not ever close. And that's a big problem when you do surgery of any kind. So here it says, patients receiving non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs 
after non-elective colorectal surgery had a 24% increased risk for leakage of their incision in the 90-day post-operative period. That is shocking that this effect lasts out to 90 days. Given that other analgesic regimens are effective and well-tolerated, these data may be enough for some surgeons to alter their practice patterns. The researchers evaluated data from 13,000 patients across 47 state hospitals who underwent bariatric, that means weight loss, or colorectal, that means colon, surgery involving um, anastomosis, that means um, a suture to join two pieces together. And patient data were recorded in the Surgical Care and Outcomes Assessment Program, which is linked to the Washington State Comprehensive Abstract Reporting System. Now, this is just so what they're telling you is this is patient data that's routinely reported out. So this another hint here that your patient records are in no way confidential. This is information that is routinely shared all the time. And this study came about just because somebody decided to hmm, take a look at the data. And so in other words, there is no ongoing um, review of this data for safety purposes. So the violation of your privacy is not necessarily going to have any beneficial effect on your future care or anyone else's. Uh, nearly one-fourth of all patients used NSAIDs, and the overall 90-day rate of complications was 4.3% for all patients. 4.8% in the NSAID group compared with 4.2% in the non-NSAID group. So patients in the NSAID group tended to be younger, have fewer comor comorbid conditions, and underwent elective procedures more often than patients who did not receive NSAIDs. So this is a healthier, in healthier patients, they had a higher complication rate with um, the use of NSAIDs. So to determine the role of NSAIDs in colorectal surgery, future evaluation should consider specific formulations the dose, effect, mechanism, and other relevant outcome domains, including pain control, cardiac complications, and overall recovery. So what they're basically saying is the role uh, of NSAIDs in pain relief after colorectal surgery maybe should not be that great. So, of course, you say, well, well, first of all, let's get some numbers here. How many people a year actually die from NSAID use? More or less. 17,000. Those are the ones who just die from the bleeding. From the heart attack complications, the answer is really don't know, not sure, nobody's talking. So we do know that there's at least 17,000 deaths a year from this use. So then the next thing is, well, you know, if we can't use NSAIDs, why don't we use low Tylenol? So this is from the Huffington Post, a very mainstream, uh, you know, publication. Tylenol overdose is staggering. Acetaminophen safeguards remain insufficient. This is a report, and this is September 14th, September 24th, 2013. And not only is acetaminophen the active ingredient in Tylenol, it is the deadliest over-the-counter pain reliever on the U.S. market, but its dangers are being overlooked by members of the public and health officials, according to a new joint report by ProPublica and Public Radio Program. Now, they go on to say <coughs> that over a 10-year period, more than 1,500 people in the U.S. died from accidental Tylenol overdose. Acetaminophen overdose sends as many as 78,000 Americans to the emergency room every year. Now, there's a moneymaker right there. And results in 33,000 hospitalizations a year. 
federal data shows. Now, we know that 1% of all people hospitalized died just from the hospitalization, just by the way. So 330 of those 33,000 died just because of a hospital-related complication unrelated to the actual Tylenol uh, poisoning. Tylenol or acetaminophen is also the nation's leading cause of acute liver failure requiring transplant, according to data from ongoing studies by the National Institutes of Health. Most experts and health officials agree that when taking, as recommended, Tylenol and other medications containing acetaminophen are relatively risk-free. So this qualifier, relatively risk-free, means they're not risk-free. They're not risk-free. There's no dose of Tylenol at which a death has not been reported. Let that sink in. So at every dose of Tylenol, there has been a human death reported. Now that little tidbit was announced in uh, medical school. Okay. There's a little bit more Tylenol over the course of a few days can result in severe illness and even death. Now just a little bit more, what does that mean? That means the deadly dose of Tylenol is just a little bit more than the recommended dose of Tylenol. That does make it very unsafe. Now, they put the annual death at uh, 130, or I'm sorry, 150. But hey, let's see what the FDA says, right? Let's see what the FDA says. That's what I say. What does that gov say? I'm going to believe what my government tells me. So here it is. This is from the um, www.fda.gov, and it says, Acetaminophen overdose and liver injury, background and options for reducing injury. So Tylenol is one of the most commonly used drugs in the United States for treating pain and fever. However, exceeding the maximum recommended dose of Tylenol can cause serious liver injury, even death. Despite a number of efforts since the early 1990s to reduce the incidence of acetaminophen-related liver injury, now, back in the 1990s, I was in medical practice, the annual death from Tylenol was reported to be as high as 2,400 deaths a year. And that was in, uh, you know, just published. So it's really um, quite shocking. So oh, let's see what they say here. A 2007 CDC population-based report estimates that nationally there are 1,600 cases of acute liver failure each year, and Tylenol-related acute liver failure was the most common etiology. Yes. And they put the death rate at 458 deaths per year related to acetaminophen-associated overdoses from 1990 to 1998. So 458 deaths per year. That's a little bit higher than the Huffington Post. Uh, that's okay. That's why we check the government numbers. Now, why do these overdoses occur? In some individuals, taking just a small amount more than the recommended total daily dose may lead to liver injury. So number one reason, not number one, but one of the reasons is that maybe they go over the dose by a little bit. Next, some individuals may be especially prone to liver injury from Tylenol 
or acetaminophen. Now, this creates a serious issue, which is that some individuals may get liver injury at the therapeutic dose, which is what they're uh, admitting to here. So the maximum amount of acetaminophen that can be safely ingested may not be the same for all people. may not be the same. It's not the same. Available data suggests that some people, especially those who use alcohol or have liver disease, may have a greater susceptibility to the effects of toxic metabolites because they produce more of the metabolite or because they're not able to clear it from the body as easily. Individuals with increased susceptibility may experience toxic effects at lower acetaminophen doses than others. Rare cases of acute liver injury have been linked to amounts lower than 2.5 grams per day. In other words, at the therapeutic dose, which is 4 grams per day, and lower, people have died. People have been harmed. And, of course, more research is needed to understand whether ethnicity, that means the color of a person's skin, genetics, nutrition, or other factors might play a role in making some individuals more prone to liver injury. Now, excuse me, FDA, you're supposed to be checking to see if these drugs are safe for people to take, and you just said that, no, it's not at the recommended dose. What more testing needs to be done? I don't know. So it can be difficult to recognize the onset of liver injury. That's another problem. People can actually be harmed, not realize that they're harmed. Maybe they think they have a tummy ache, don't do anything, and they drop dead and they die. And next, there are many different types of over-the-counter and prescription Tylenol products and a range of doses for a variety of different indications. In other words, you can take a cold preparation that has acetaminophen in it. Then you can take regular acetaminophen, not realizing you're actually taking acetaminophen twice. Or if you take a narcotic, you might think, oh, I took a narcotic, not realizing that has acetaminophen in it. So you could take Tylenol. It doesn't work for your pain. Then you take um, maybe a cold preparation, also has Tylenol in it, still doesn't work for your pain. Then you take a narcotic prescription, which has Tylenol in it, and it may not work for your pain, but there you are dropping dead. So um, also many consumers do not know that acetaminophen overdoses can cause serious liver injury. Most people think of Tylenol is safe, and so they don't um, seek help in time. And also it can be difficult to identify Tylenol as an ingredient in prescription products. Prescription products that contain Tylenol or acetaminophen, usually with codeine, oxycodone, or hydrocodone, are often labeled as containing APAP rather than acetaminophen. So um, these are on pharmacy dispense containers. So without clear labeling, people can take more than one product containing Tylenol and not be aware of it. And this is the worst one. This is very tragic because it kills a lot of children. Liquid products for children are available in different concentrations. So you can give a kid a half teaspoon of Tylenol, or basically two and a half cc's, and depending on the concentration in the bottle, the kid can actually get 10 times as much of the active acetaminophen ingredient, of course, killing the poor kid. So what has the FDA done to address the problem? Uh, it doesn't really matter because the problem is still here, but we'll just go through it to kind of exonerate them. So 1998, FDA finalized the regulation requiring alcohol warnings be added to over-the-counter labeling. Okay. And in 2002, they held a public advisory committee meeting. Okay, so they talked about it. In 2004, they launched a public education campaign. Okay, talked about it some more. 2004, requested assistance from state boards of pharmacy in reducing acetaminophen-related liver injury. So they basically, they talked about it, talked about it, talked about it, talked about it. Uh, in 2007, 
They convened a multidisciplinary working group to review the safety issue related to the city medicine. All right, talk some more. And in 2009, they issued the final regulation to strengthen the labeling for over-the-counter products containing Tylenol. So here we have a black box labeling, 2009. Alcohol warning is part of liver warning. Warning includes information on potential for severe liver damage. Liver warning is required on immediate container labels. Ingredient name, acetaminophen, is highlighted or in bold type. And statement, see new warning information is highlighted or in bold type and in a prominent print size on the uh, container. Label contains concomitant use warning to avoid use of other acetaminophen products and direction to ask a doctor before taking acetaminophen in the presence of liver disease or if using warfarin, the blood thinner. And, of course, the FDA is expanding its educational program. So basically, they've talked about it, talked about it, talked about it, and, well, talked about it some more. So a lot of good that has done. Uh, here's another one. Tylenol overuse, this might as well use the word use, Tylenol use raises death risk 60%. 60%. Take a healthy person, give them Tylenol, their death rate is increased 60%. So one study even showed that use of acetaminophen can increase a person's risk of early death by as much as 60%, the study authors found. That means your chances of dying are 160% of what they were before you took Tylenol. This is pretty impressive. Uh, bigger doses seem to be more associated with those side effects. And uh, study authors are calling, calling for a new systematic review of acetaminophen's effectiveness and safeness. So we've got... NSAIDs, unsafe to use. Got Tylenol, unsafe to use. What about narcotics? Yeah, what about narcotics? What about narcotics? Well, I happened to check up on this. So it turns out that narcotics, prescription narcotics, kill about 16,000 people a year. <laughs> Need I say more? So if your doctor gives you a prescription narcotic, you know, post-operative pain, uh, broken bone, whatever, you can expect uh, that you may end up in the list of 16,000 uh, people every year. Done. Now, just, just to put this in perspective, homicide in the United States is actually illegal. Yeah, homicide is illegal. You probably heard that. We only have uh, 12 to 14,000 Americans every year die of homicide. But 16,000 alone die of prescribed narcotics, 17,000 die of arthritis pills, and more or less Tylenol, uh, 500 die of Tylenol poisoning. Now, again, we haven't mentioned the ones who will say survive because they got a new liver and they have a lifetime of uh, living with a transplant and the trauma of even going through getting a transplant. So this is pretty traumatic. And so it raises the question, would your doctor recommend pain relief? Is he relieving your pain? The answer is no. Or just putting you out of your misery? The answer appears to be yes, putting you out of your misery. Exactly. And so if these drugs work so well, then it would be possible to prescribe them at a low enough dose where people got pain relief and they would be safe. As they say, the poison is in the dose, right? So the real issue is that these drugs are actually not effective for pain relief. 
shocking, isn't it? They're actually not effective for pain relief. People who take narcotics for pain relief actually have more pain six months after their injury than those who did not take narcotics for their injury. So what's a person to do? Just like suffer? No, I'm not a fan of suffering. You don't have to suffer. The show wouldn't be any fun if I left you hanging with nothing but panic, right? So there's a simple, simple, simple solution to pain. So pain really only has there's only three causes of pain. That's that's a relief. It should be a relief to know that. Uh, number one cause of pain is dehydration. So in other words, drinking water relieves pain. Most pain, doesn't matter what the cause is, can be relieved by the person simply drinking water. Just drink like a pint of water at a time until uh, the pain goes down. It actually will go down. What's the next cause of pain? Next cause of pain is trauma. What's that? It means your surgeon cut you with a knife. Or, you know, maybe you had a sports injury, so trauma. And so what happens in trauma? In trauma, your body's injured and your body's trying to repair itself. If you help your body repair itself quicker, then the pain goes away. This sounds really archaic, but alternating hot and cold compresses it actually works. Alternating hot and cold compresses. The other thing you can do to speed the healing is take activated charcoal. What does that do? Activated charcoal pulls toxins and poisons out of your body through your intestines. And that brings us to the third cause of pain. The third cause of pain is that toxins, parasites, call them impurities if you will, congregate at the site of the pain. And where do these things come from? They come from your blood. So what do you do? Clear out the blood. Easiest way to do that is to poop. Yep, easiest way to do that is to have a bowel movement. So very simple. So if you have pain, more bowel movements, drink water, alternate hot and cold, and take charcoal. None of those require a prescription. I know, you're shocked. You're shocked. Yep, truth is stranger. Truth is stranger. And with these uh, maneuvers, one can actually relieve the underlying cause of pain and relieve the pain itself and spare yourself uh, this cause of death. This is a lot of death, you know. That's about 23,000 people a year. When you add up just the deaths and opioids, opioids, uh, prescription narcotics, and the um, NSAIDs, that's a death toll that you just don't have to put up with. You just don't have to do it. And it's not like nobody knows. The only person who doesn't know is you. In other words, the only person who hasn't been told is the patient. The only one who didn't get the memo is the um, is the patient. These sources that I read you, they're all from the uh, emails that your doctor gets every day in his inbox. Now, maybe your doctor doesn't read them. Maybe he's busy. Okay, I get it. That's okay. But why should you suffer because of it? So definitely go to uh, vitalitycapsules.com and get your vitality capsules so you can poop your way away from pain. All right, questions. Oh, let's see. 
Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's see here. We've got a lot of questions here, I think. Uh, Dr. Dan, what do you recommend for someone who has colon cancer? Okay, so what's the cause of colon, colon cancer? Basically, one cause is constipation. Second cause is uh, parasites in the intestinal tract. Test show is contained within the colon close to the rectum. That's good. About two inches of surgical removal, reattachment is what has been advised. I also know they are high in H. pylori and candida. I don't know what that means. Maybe the person who has cancer has a lot of parasites. Does serpentine take care of all of these? Uh, it helps, yeah. Right now, they're unable to do much juicing as the fresh juice is hard on the belly. It causes cramping, thank you. Yes. So serpentine would be helpful, but would be more helpful is definitely relieve this person's constipation. Get them pooping uh, regularly. Dr. Daniels, can serpentine help a deep fungal infection that could be triggering seizures? So I think a more direct question is what might be a reasonable thing to do for your seizures? I would say follow the Candida Cleaner Report without using the turpentine. Just follow the report, the diet in the report, for about a month or two, and you'll see the seizures decline. Okay. <laughs> All right. Dr. Downs, here in Upland, Tylenol is paracetamol. That's the same thing as called here in Panama as well. Practice, current session. <laughs> okay. All right, so it's so a discussion here of uh, cannabis. All right. All right, so we have a question here online. Let's see if we can... Uh, I'll get to it. I'm going to click this button and we're going to hope it works. Hi, your question? Okay, so let's see. That's it for the offline questions. Let's see the online questions. On January 13th, Okay, some fungi develop excellent defenses against candida. Hmm. All right, lots of questions here. All right. All right, we got it. Okay, I think this is all for the questions that I can find. Okay. I used to take ibuprofen all the time until I heard about this warning. I work long hours on my feet. My feet hurt. So the question would be, Dr. Downs, what should I do about my painful feet? There's a lot you can do about your painful feet. Uh, instead of buying ibuprofen because you're not doing that because you realize it can kill you, you can buy a gallon of castor oil, a gallon of castor oil, and put your feet in a little um, wash tub or in two bread pans, whatever your feet fit into best, and pour in the castor oil till it's covering the part of your foot that's painful. 
and soak there for three hours a day, three days in a row, and generally it just takes the pain right away, and uh, that's it, you're done. Okay. Let's see here. All right. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, I think they should crack down on alcohol. Uh, they tried that. It's called prohibition. Didn't work. So I think really the, um, my opinion, is I think all these drugs should just be legal and over-the-counter, including the ones I discussed tonight. And people can make up their own minds. And... I think what will happen is people will make up their own mind, and I think there will be a lot less um, disease and problems from these drugs. People will just decide, hey, I'm not going to do it. I mean, if access to drugs um, cause these problems, then you know you would expect that um, doctors who have a prescription pad would, you know, have a higher um, degree of addiction. It doesn't, does not appear to be the case. What is really needed is education, people to understand what is in these drugs, what these drugs are really doing. And FDA aside, um, there is no um, evidence these drugs are either safe or effective. And people realize that it is their responsibility to make a decision about a drug's safety, not the FDA. The FDA, um, you know, uses window dressing, um, you know, to stamp something as safe and effective. But how can you call something safe and effective when it kills more people, more Americans than even homicide? And, and homicide is, is illegal. So if we just take the baseline of homicide, if something kills more than 16,000 Americans a year, maybe it's not a good idea. And they are um, endorsing these drugs safe and effective when these drugs actually kill more people than homicide. And we're not talking about collective killing. We're talking about just one class of drugs, opioids or NSAIDs. So the moral of the story is it's your decision. It's your job to decide whether you think a drug is safe whether you think it's effective, and act accordingly. There, there is no institution out there that is protecting you at all. It's fantasy. All right. We have reached the end of our hour. And as always, think happens, and we'll see you next week.